Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. If you're a fan of great movies from Hollywood's golden era of the 1930s and 40s, you are really going to enjoy this episode. Our guest, Cora Sue Collins, was born in Beckley, West Virginia in 1927, and at age three, moved with her mother and older sister to Los Angeles, California. Almost immediately after arriving in Los Angeles, she was cast in a lead role in the motion picture, The Unexpected Father, alongside former silent film stars Zazu Pitts and Slim Somerville. Cora Sue then went on to act in dozens of films over the next 12 years, working with celebrities like Greta Garbo, Lionel Barrymore, Jackie Cooper, Lana Turner, Max Baer, and Jack Dempsey, some of whom became her personal friends. Cora Sue is here today to share her memories of her life as a child actress in Hollywood more than 80 years ago. It is now my privilege to welcome Cora Sue Collins to our show. Welcome, Cora Sue. I'm so happy to be with you. Thank you for asking me to join you. Well, I'm very excited to have you as a guest on our podcast because you are such an interesting person. We've spoken before and you have such a wonderful story to tell. And since this podcast is about stories, you are the ideal guest. You really are. You flatter me. I love it. (laughs) Cora Sue, I'm going to ask you, Where were you born, and what are some of your earliest memories? I was born in Beckley, West Virginia. Not because we were living there. My mother was visiting her sister, and I just came along a month early. We were living in Virginia at that time. And my earliest memories of that era was that I was taking dancing lessons and being photographed. And I was was in a baby contest. And then when I was three, my father gave his secretary a mink coat for Christmas. Ooh. The furrier told my mother, we live in a small town. <laughs> Word gets round. You bet. So my mother confronted my father. And of course, he had no recourse because it happened. So my mother just arbitrarily decided that girl was providing other than secretarial services. And she dumped my father. So she picked up and packed up my sister, Madge, who was eight years older than me, was eight years older than me, and me, and took us to Hollywood. And the third day we were we're here. My mother was registering my, my sister in school. We were on a street called Highland Avenue. And this lady came screeching up to the sidewalk, pulled up a car, jumped out of a car and indicated me and said to my mother, would you like to put your little girl in pictures? And my mother said, well, yes. So this lady said, well, get in the car. We'll go to Universal. They're having a casting. And I went to Universal and I got the part. Amazing. I left that studio with a signed contract. The film's name was Unexpected Father. And it was for Unexpected Father, starring Slim Somerville, Zazu Pitts, and Cora Sue Collins. So I said, this could only happen in Hollywood. I'll say. And this was what, 1930, 32? This was 1930. I was born in 27. I was three years old. Amazing. So here you are. We're in the, it's only the second year of the Great Depression, and you have landed a job at three years old to be in a movie with Slim Somerville and Zazu Pitts, who were big names, right, at that time in Hollywood? They were the Lucy and Desi of their era. Hmm. They were the comedy couple. They were very famous. Wow, what a what an experience. And I just want to ask you, so back up just a drop what made your mom decide to bring you from west virginia to hollywood in the first place i think my mother i know my mother wanted to be an actress singer dancer something like that but in the south at least in those days someone from a good family you supported the ballet the opera you didn't dance or sing or anything like that you didn't participate my mother wanted to participate so I think she, she brought my sister and me, hoping that something would happen with us, which it did with me. So, so I think she was just living vicariously through our lives. Right. They were called stage mothers. 
Stage mothers. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. You get that idea, that character, that sort of driving and driving and uh, pedal to the metal sort of uh, stage mom. That's true. So tell me about this movie, The Unexpected Father. Well, it was about an orphan who comes in contact with Slim Somerville because she climbs into the rumble seat of his convertible. He finds her and he takes her home. Now he's engaged to be married. He's very, very wealthy. And the um, girl he's supposed to marry is a very conniving mother. And she wants a wealthy husband. And so they hire a nanny. And the nanny is Zazu Pitts. And of course, some Somerville and Zazu Pitts fall in love. And the nasty girl finally is out of the picture. And they live happily ever after. And your character's name was what? Pudge. P-U-D-G-E. Uh, so happily ever after, Pudge lives with Slim Somerville and Zazu Pitts. Exactly. Wow. These are old time actors and actresses. Well, how incredible. What an incredible experience for you. It was fun. I bet it was. So mm -hmm. I want to ask you about another movie that you were in called The Prize Fighter and the Lady. And it's dated 1933. And you were in that movie along with Myrna Loy. Max Bear, the boxer, the heavyweight champion, Primo Canera, also a, a heavyweight boxer, and Jack Dempsey, yet another boxer. What do you remember of those people in that film? May I start with Jack Dempsey? Yes. All right. My first husband, Jim McKay, was a friend of Jack Dempsey's. And when Jack Dempsey was down on his luck, my husband supported him, gave him a stipend, monthly salary and room to live and so forth. And they remained best friends. So I knew Jack Dempsey very, very well. Not before the picture. I mean, I was a little girl when in the picture. Right. But later on in life, I knew him very well. And Primo Canero was the biggest man I've ever seen. He was huge. He was a mountain of a man. Mm -hmm. Mr. Canero was very nice. I don't remember a lot about him. I didn't have a lot of interaction with him. But Max Bear, I did. And Max was the sweetest man. He was just adorable and, and dear and, I guess, loved children because he was very kind to me. And Myrna Loy became a lifelong friend. Really? Myrna was a friend of mine until she died. I loved her. What an experience. Now, Max Bear was the father of Max Bear Jr., who played the part of Jethro Bodine on the Beverly Hillbillies, one of my favorite shows. Me and, too. Yeah. But Max Bear Sr., was also portrayed, I forget who the actor was who portrayed him, but he was in the movie Cinderella Man, kind of made out to be a bad guy. But anything else that I've read about Max Bear was that he was a really, really nice man. Let me set this straight. He was a wonderful man. He was a lovely man. He was not at all like the character he played in that film. Mm -hmm. And that uh, you were just a little girl, but you do remember those incredible champions from the boxing ring. And of course, Myrna Loy, an amazing actress from her, from her era. And I knew Max Bear off and on the rest of my life as well, or his life, I should say. Yeah, he was a nice man. So Cora, so you were also in a movie called Treasure Island from 1934. And you're in that movie with Jackie Cooper and Lionel Barrymore. Can you tell us something about those two gentlemen? I certainly can. Jackie was a friend of mine, lifelong friend, wonderful, dear friend, wonderful man. And he was a very talented child actor. But in his adult life, he was even more acclaimed as being one of the best directors and producers in Hollywood, which doesn't always happen with child stars. That's right. He was, no, he was wonderful. And Lionel Barrymore was the sweetest, dearest man. We had a bucket show together with Sigmund Romberg, and it was like a grandfather telling fireside tales to his granddaughter. Really? And yes, which ran, I don't know whether it was six months or a year, but it was great fun for me because I loved both of these people. They were both fascinating. And Mr. Romberg, Mr. Romberg had a crush on my mother. My mother was very beautiful. So he used to take us to a Romanian restaurant. Mm -hmm. And one we loved it. it was called Mama Weiss. And we'd go there at least once a week. 
And one day he said to me, would you like the recipe for Romanian apple pie? Well, I couldn't cook, but I thought, yes. So he said, first you steal eight apples. He was a really cute guy. He was adorable. But there was a scene where I was supposed to say to Mr. Romberg, have you ever been to Vienna? And I goofed. I said, have you ever been to Vienna? <laughs> and we laughed. So in the next run through, I said the same thing. And the director said, don't do that, Corusu, because you'll do it on the take. Mm. And sure enough, I did. <laughs> in the final show, I did it. And I never, ever played around with that again because it's too damn dangerous. <laughs> you'll definitely say it wrong again. So that radio show was a few years after you did Treasure Island with Lionel Barrymore. Mm, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What was your role in Treasure Island? What part did you play in that movie, Coruscant? Well, Mr. Stevenson, when he wrote that book, there was no little girl. But if you were under contract to MGM Studios and you worked for L.B. Mayer, mm -hmm. you worked. So they wrote in a part for a little girl. She's not in the original book. She's not in that classic Treasure Island book. But you were. <laughs> I was because I was available. Damn it. If I was under contract, I was going to work. That's you were working. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Cora Sue, you talked about Jackie Cooper, and he was not only a successful child actor, but he also went on to do some great things with movies later on in life. I remember him from the famous Little Rascals. He was yes. in some of the earlier episodes. I remember him, and he was in with uh, Chubsy Ubsy and Miss Crabtree and some of those old episodes I used to watch as a kid. And mm -hmm. uh, I did want to ask you, when you were on some of these sets, did you ever see, uh, there were other things going on at that time. I'm not sure they were in the same studios, but back in the 30s, there were the, Little Rascals, but there were also some classic horror movies being made, like with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and Lon Chaney Jr., the, the old Frankenstein, Dracula, and Wolfman. Did you ever see any of, of these people on the sets? Yes. I met Mr. Karloff. He was a lovely man. Mm -hmm. Bela Lugosi, I was introduced to him. I can't say he was a friend. Mm -hmm. Who are the other names you mentioned? Uh, Lon Chaney. Oh, I met Mr. Chaney as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, very gracious. Mm -hmm. uh, very gentlemanly. Not at all like the characters they portrayed. <laughs> yeah, they were kind of uh, gruesome characters. I know the Wolfman was, uh, I always enjoyed the Wolfman uh, movies with Lon Chaney Jr., uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, my grandson, who's now seven, he actually likes the Wolfman. That's one of his favorites, even though it's a the movie was made probably uh, eighty years before he was born. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. Now, how about any of the other little rascals people, like Alfalfa and? Spank I knew Alfalfa. Mm -hmm. I knew Alfalfa well, and Alfalfa came to an untimely end. Unfortunately, he died over I think it was a a fifty dollar bet. Yeah, I remember reading that. That's terrible. Yeah, sad. Yeah, definitely. So you also were in a movie in 1938 called The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and you were originally cast as Becky Thatcher, weren't you? Yes, I was. It took them a year to find the boy who mm -hmm. would play Tom Sawyer. Mm -hmm. So in a year, I had sprouted up. So there I was, about three inches taller than Tommy, and they'd already paid me. So I played his former love interest, Amy, as opposed to Becky, and uh, had a very good time. Loved making it. It was fun filming it. And I had beautiful costumes. So again, you were paid, you were going to work, right? That's the way Hollywood ran. I just have a couple more movies I want to ask you about. Go ahead. One was Anna Karenina, 1935. You were in that movie with Greta Garbo, Frederick March. Basil Rathbone. These are big names in Hollywood. Can you tell us about that experience? Yes. Miss Garbo was a lovely, lovely lady. So, but she had requested me for that film mm -hmm. because I played her niece in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, Basil Rathbone was a charming man, charming, delightful, stately gentleman. 
and um, Frederick March. Oh, Frederick March. I knew him well. Mm-hmm. He was a lovely man. He was a good friend of my mother's. It's very nice. But I'll tell you how I met Miss Garbo. Again, I was under contract to MGM. But Miss Garbo was under contract to MGM. And as we all know, she was from Sweden. And Metro Goldwyn Mayer was going to make Queen Christina, which was the life, the actual life of a queen of Sweden. But Queen Christina, in reality, when she was a little girl, was coronated when she was five because her father, who was the king, was killed in a war. Mm. And Miss Garbo wanted to select the child who would play her. And she selected me. So that was when I met her. And we remained friends from the time I was five until she passed away. We were very good friends. In fact, at one time in my life, I bought an apartment in Paris because I just love Paris. And when I wasn't working, I'd go over there and I spent every summer there. And Miss Garbo bought an apartment on the same street so we could spend time together because by then she was retired. And we'd go walking every day. She'd call me in the morning and she'd say, Corazu, you want to walk? And I'd say, yes. So she'd come by and pick me up. And we'd go walking for an hour, two hours, three hours. We both liked to walk. And then afterwards, she would like, you want some tea? And in all the years I knew her, I never saw her drink. I'm sure perhaps with other people she did with me, she only drank tea. So we'd go back to my apartment and I'd make tea and we'd have tea. And then she would be grumbling to herself and she would say, I would say, I beg your pardon? She'd say, I don't understand it. After all these years, they still say, you got the gobble. Well, may I tell you how she dressed for these walks? Please do. I'll I'll start from the shoes up. She wore men's black shoes, which in those days were called, the name of the shoe was a brogan, mm-hmm. which was a very definitely a man's shoe. She was, she was a large woman. She had big feet. Then she wore men's trousers. And then she wore that polo coat, which tied in the front, and the big slouch hat. Now, if you were doing an imitation of Greta Garbo, that's how you dress. So, of course, they recognized her. Yeah. But I, I never had the nerve to explain it to her. She was so sweet. I loved that lady. Oh, that's what nice memories. Now, I want to ask, what was it like as a child working? It sounds like you were working a lot. You were under contract. I imagine back in those days, they didn't have the child labor laws that they have today. What what was your work schedule like and how did it impact your life? (laughs) Okay. I hope you're sitting down, James. (laughs) I am. I had to be on the lot, usually at seven o'clock in the morning for makeup, hair, and wardrobe, and on the set, set ready by nine. Then I would stay on the set until the set broke, which would be six o'clock, seven o'clock, 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night. Mm -hmm. Then we would all leave. I had to be back the next day and know my lines. And when I was three years old, they gave me a whole hour off a day. And we worked from Monday through Saturday. We worked six days a week. Oh, my goodness. Now, that is slave labor. Now, I imagine back in the 30s, during the Great Depression, which I mentioned before, when people were, you know, I think there was like 25% unemployment and people were really struggling. You had the soup lines and everything. Having a job in Hollywood where you were making a, you know, a, a pretty much steady salary and you were working a lot, you and your mom or particularly your mom at that point, because you were probably too young to even realize it, were probably very, very pleased and very happy to, to have that security. So I imagine you would do anything that you had to because A, you were under contract and B, you didn't want to be out there unemployed during the Great Depression. You're absolutely correct. You were blessed if you had a job in those years, I understand, because there was so much unemployment and people didn't have food to eat. And there we were. I was having a, you know, a steady income. I was working for it, but that was all right. I didn't know anything else. That was just what I did. And I thought that was what you do. Definitely. Now, And I was on loan. See, Mr. Mayor also was, if you were under contract to him, you were like a piece of chattel. He would loan me out. A friend of mine was doing research on me. And he said, you made 30 films in two years. It was an outrageous amount of films. And I can remember sometimes being on two different lots the same day working on two different films. 
you were at MGM. You were also what at other studios like Universal or things like oh, that. Oh, I was loaned. I was loaned out to all those other studios. Mm-hmm. What about your school? How did you continue to learn while you were working so much? Well, that was the one good part of this whole era, is that Mr. Mayor, if he had a player that had a particular talent, he would foster it. And what he gave me was one-on-one instruction. I had personal tutors every day, not Saturday and Sunday, but five days a week. And at one time in my life, I had four full college professors teaching me. No, I had a wonderful education. I was overeducated and undersocialized. I had no peer companionship. The only time I ever saw another child was if I worked with them in a film, which was rare. But um, got a good education, so I'm grateful for that. Definitely. But I'm thinking you were so young when you came out to Hollywood and started working at three years old that you almost didn't know what you were missing, did you? I knew I was missing a lot. I didn't know specifically what I was missing. So when I left the industry and a few years later got married and had three children, I decided I'd enjoy all the things I didn't enjoy as a child. And I can imagine these people would say, oh, here comes this crazy lady. She's going to go and do all the things her kids do. <laughs> and I really had a wonderful time growing up with my children. Oh, that's great. So that, that's the silver lining, I guess. Yes. yes. Yeah. So as you got older and you've been in Hollywood for a while, we're talking now, we're into, say, the 1940s. First of all, I want to back up and say that uh, I want to ask you this question. Do you know how many movies in total that you were in? When my mother stopped doing the filmography, I had filmed 110 films. Now, some of them may have been double named because some of them would be under working titles or come out under another name. I don't know. So on my filmography and I don't know those bios that are on mm-hmm. social media, it doesn't say that many films. But that's how many films I actually worked on that were being filmed. Whether they all came out, whether they came out under other names, I don't know. But I worked a lot. (laughs) Uh, So you mentioned your sister before. She was eight years older than you? Yes. What was she doing during this time? Not a lot. My sister wanted to be a dancer, but an interpretive dancer. She didn't want to study because she knew how she liked to dance and she wanted to dance that way. The only problem was no one would hire her. So my mother decided that she would tell the studio that she wouldn't let me do a part if they didn't give my sister something to do in the in the film. And it could be a walk-on, it could be do it could be anything. So that really did not lead to a great sibling relationship. I can imagine. Well, to me, my sister was bossy and I was a pest. But you can imagine how awful it was for her working was predicated on on my having on my working. I mean, it was just not a good relationship. Yeah, it's not setting it up for success, is it? No, but we became friends later on. It was okay. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Me too. So let's let's go into that in the 1940s and the mid 40s. And you had uh, you had been in Hollywood, say for. 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. I know that you stopped acting in Hollywood when you were about 17 or 18 years old. Is that true, Corso? No, I was 15. You're 15 when you stopped. Why, why did you stop? Can you tell us what the circumstances were that caused you to stop working so much? Um, it was a very difficult time in my life. As my mother and father were divorced, I didn't have a male role model. I didn't have a father uh, image. Yeah. And the man who was my mentor at MGM was named Harry Ruskin. He was an incredibly talented writer, scriptwriter, screenwriter. And he was my mentor. He annotated my reports, my philosophy is his. And he's just this wonderful man. And I went to the studio one day, and he wanted me to read a synopsis that he had written for me. And it was incredible. I have goosebumps now thinking about it. 
because he knew me so well. It was the perfect part for me. Yeah. And I would have given my right arm to play it, but not my virginity. Oh, no. Because right there came the proposition. Oh, no. Succinctly put, you must mm, me, mm -hmm. and so forth. And I said, Harry. And of course, I immediately, my reaction was that of a battered wife. What had I done to cause this? Oh, that's terrible. Had I dressed improperly? Had I said, you know, what had I done? Anyway, he finally screamed at me, listen, there are a dozen girls in Hollywood who'd love to sleep with me to play this part. I said, good, let them. And I realized I was starting to cry, so I left the room. I left his office. Mm -hmm. And the first door I came to that was unlocked was a cleaning closet. So I went in there. There were no lights. I blocked the door. I cried. I was just so upset. I mean, it was just so awful. Mm. So I dried myself up, mopped and sopped, and I went upstairs to Mr. Mayor's office, to L.B. Mayer's office. And Ida Coverman, when I walked in, Ida Coverman was Mr. Mayor's secretary. She said, Cora Sue, you don't have an appointment today. I said, no, but I see a lot of people sitting here. I said, I can wait. So I just sat down. So eventually, Mr. Mayor, I went in to see him. And he said, have you read the synopsis? Didn't you love it? And he wouldn't stop. I couldn't get a word in edgewise. He said, I have, I have even your favorite director, your favorite cinematographer, everybody you love to work with. It's going to be a great film. And I thought, well, I'll just wait until he runs out and then I'll say what I want to say. So he's sitting down at his desk opposite me. And finally, he said, well, now tell me, what do you think of the script, of the synopsis? And I said, Mr. Mayor, the synopsis is wonderful. But do you know what Harry wants me to do? And Mr. Mayor jumped up from the back of his chair. He was a little man. Mm -hmm. And he had very Napoleonic complex. He ran around his desk. He sat on the arm of this huge black leather overstuffed chair that I was sitting in the corner, pulled me to him. And he said, you'll get used to it, dear. No. And... Course, Sue, how old were you? You were 15 at this time? I was not yet 16. Oh, that's awful. That is awful. So what happened then? Well, after about 45 minutes, when I'd convinced him that I was one not going to sleep with him, Harry Ruskin, or anybody else, and I wasn't going to work, he jumped across his desk with his little fat finger and waggled it under my nose and said, Cora Sue, you will never work on a soundstage again as long as you live. And I said, Mr. Mayor, that's my heartfelt desire. And James, to this day, it's the best single decision of my life. You should be very proud of that decision. I am. And I couldn't talk about it for many, many years. And finally, a friend of mine, I confided in very few people about this story. Incidentally, an aside, my mother never believed me. My mother believed I misunderstood Harry. As succinctly as he spoke, it would have been difficult to misunderstand him. But that's what he told my mother. And until my mother died, she said, you broke Harry's heart because you misunderstood him and you dropped him from your life. Oh, of course. So that, that's so, first of all, it's, it's horrifying that you had to deal with that. You were just a child, really, at the time. And then it's not to get the support, you know, and I'm sure you loved your mom, but just the, the fact that she didn't believe you must have been really difficult for you. It was heartbreaking. Mm. But... I spoke with five other girls who were in the industry at the same time, and their mothers had the same reaction. Yeah. But three of them, their mothers said, well, you know, do what you have to do to get the job, dear. Oh, boy. So many of those mothers were just pimping those girls out. They were desperate to keep them working and uh, keep the Make them stars. Make live them. through them vicariously. I know it's terrible. Yeah. Oh, that's. That is terrible, but you stuck to your guns and, uh, mm -hmm. and that was it. But, but didn't you actually, at some point, didn't you get a call from Mr. Mayor again and actually go back? I and did. One Two more years later, I was 18 and Mr. Mayor called me. And as soon as I picked up the phone, I recognized his voice. And I said, Mr. Mayor, how are you? And he said, very well, thank you, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I'm making a film with all your buddies. And I said, my friends have all told me about it. It's called Weekend at the Waldorf. And he said, yes, he said, how would you like to play the bride who spends the weekend at the Waldorf? And I said, Mr. Mayor, I think you've just talked me out of retirement. 
So I made the film and I loved it because I worked with all my friends, Lana Turner, this and that. I mean, they were all in it. So mm -hmm. it was great fun doing the film. But then I did two other films and I decided this is not for me. I made the proper decision. I'm out of here. Good for you. Good for you. And again, you stuck to your guns and yep. you, but you, but you knew, even though you went back and did a couple more movies, you were, you figured you were, you were done. You were going to do something else. What did you do? What happened to Cora Sue after Hollywood? I lived many other wonderful lives. The first one I married and had three terrific children. My eldest, Jamie, he died after a heart transplant. And my next daughter, Melinda, died just last year from multiple sclerosis and severe bipolar. But my youngest daughter, Susie, is still with me, and she's the delight of my life. She is wonderful. She's incredibly talented. She's a fantastic artist, painter, sculptor, and so forth. She has paintings all over the world, and she had a show at the Louvre in Paris. In fact, she had. I don't know if you know of LACMA, Los Angeles County Museum of Art. Oh, no, I'm not familiar with that. Very, very famous. Yeah. And she had a showing at LACMA six months after she started painting. I mean, people have died and not had showings there. Yeah. She's, just, that... she's amazingly talented. I don't know. Where, I can't even sign my signature <laughs> legibly enough for you to read it. And I have a daughter who's this famous, famous artist. Oh, that's terrific. No, she's sensational and she's a terrific person. Does she live nearby you, Cora Sue? Thank God. It's not that near. We live 12 miles apart. I love to go and visit, but we see each other frequently. Oh, that's good. And I'm so sorry about the fact that you lost your other two children, Cora Sue. I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, but I'm so glad that you have such a good, close relationship with your daughter. I do. She's a wonderful girl. So what happened now? So you had the three children and, and then what else? I understand you had some, some adventures, uh, some big adventures, as you mentioned before, you were kind of catching up and on your childhood and doing stuff with your kids. What kind of things happened to you? Well, one thing, a girlfriend of mine had a problem in Acapulco, Mexico. And because I spoke Spanish, she asked me if I would accompany her and help her. Mm -hmm. So we're driving around the bay and I see these girls water skiing standing on each other's shoulders on water skis. And I thought, I could do that. Because what I had been worrying about was my children had no father image and they had no, they had no one to admire as far as sports were concerned because I had never even played catch. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were afraid I'd break my hands. I, would, I never was permitted to learn to ride a bicycle. I couldn't roller skate. They wouldn't let me do anything because I might help my, hurt myself and I wouldn't be able to work. So... We finished what my friend needed me to help her with. I went around to the Club de Skis, went in, and met the owners. They were both from Arizona. The male owner was a retired pediatric neurosurgeon, and the wife was a dance teacher. So I explained that I wanted to learn to water ski. They said, we'll, we'll give you our best teacher. I said, no, I'm a mimic. Please give me the teacher with the best style. I want the one who skis the best, not the teacher, because I'm just a mimic, I'll simply copy him, which I did. And I took my first tournament three months after I put on my first ski, because, and I can't even take any credit for it, because anyone who has danced professionally, ballet on toe, professionally, I'm not talking about in class, mm -hmm. paid for it, or anyone who has been a professional figure skater, either one, Lateral transfer. You put on a ski, you ski as though you've done it all your life. So I can't take any, even any credit for it, but that was fun because what I would do is I would climb up on his, we would ski, we would both be in the water side by side. He would bend his knees. I would kick off a ski, put a foot on his knee, jump up on his shoulders, and then stand up there and do ballet poses standing on his shoulders. Oh, no one had done that before. So for a while, I was the only one doing it. So that's why I took all those tournaments. All I was doing was old ballet poses. I knew how to do it. I didn't do anything unusual, but it was fun. 
I bet it was fun, but you know, I I can imagine there's people in you 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 took a tournament in three months. There's I'm sure there's a lot of people, myself included. I've never tried it, but it'd probably take me three months just to stand up on the skis for maybe a couple of hundred yards or something like that without falling off. Not really. If you have a good teacher, I could teach you out. <laughs> but um no, it was it was just because I had had the, a training, a discipline that permitted me to perform easily. Yes. But I had a lot of fun experiences. I bet. I do know in a prior conversation, you mentioned about cooking. It wasn't something that you knew how to do while you were in Hollywood. You weren't uh, required to cook your own food or anything like that. But later on in life, you took uh, quite an interest in it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. My mother could do anything but cook. My mother couldn't cook. She was a terrible cook, but she had very definite um beliefs. Nothing should be cooked until you're ready to eat it. Nothing should be cut into or paired until you're ready to eat it. Fruit is everything fresh, which of course in later years has come proved to be true that our foods lose, I think it's 98% of their nutrition in the first 15 minutes. Anyway, mom, I don't know how she knew that a hundred years ago, but she was incredible, but she couldn't cook. Mm -hmm. So when I got married, my husband had absolutely no desire for me to learn to cook on him. Mm-hmm. So I know I had these children all a year apart, one, two, and three years old. And uh, they were about, the oldest was maybe four, four and a half years old when this happened. And I always hired the nanny with the proviso that she prepared not only the children's breakfast, but my husband's breakfast and my breakfast because I couldn't do it. I had never been in the kitchen in my life. <laughs> I worked on my life. So one day, about four o'clock in the morning, knock on the door, and it was the nanny. She had some whoopsie kind of a virus, and she went back to her room because she was sick. So at six o'clock, I woke up my husband. He said, what do you want? And I said, we have to take the children to breakfast. I didn't know how to make breakfast for them. I'd never made a cup of instant coffee. We went to a pharmacy on the first floor, the ground floor of the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and we got there about 6.30 in the morning. There were all these hungover drunks. And that's where my children had breakfast. Because I couldn't cook. And we lapped dissolve. I was always usually, I was able to hire a cook. But then my husband died and I was just desolate because I was so unhappy. And on a whim, I moved to Mexico and I loved it. I lived there two years and nine months and adored Mexico. And um, then I, I rented a house. Later, I bought a house, but I rented a house, and I tried to find a cook, and I couldn't find a cook. So I called a friend of mine who lived in Mexico, who had been my house guest many times, and I said, is there a good cooking class in town? She said, yes. I said, enroll me yesterday. So I went to this cooking class, and um, the cooking class was graduate school for Cordon Bleu graduates. Mm, Serious business. Serious business. The chef tried to give me my money back. I said, no, you cashed my check. You have to teach me. So I learned the world's basic recipes. I mean, my basic recipes are the world's most intimidating recipes. I've never made a simple recipe in my life. I mean, I make the most complex recipe, and they're my basics. That's how I learned to cook. So years later, I was living in Beverly Hills, and my dear friend Dale was getting married in Mexico. Now, she was from the United States, and she had grown up with me practically. I'm older than she, but not that much older than she. And we had grown up as friends. So she had Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner at my house everywhere. Her family used to come and have Thanksgiving and Christmas with me wherever I was in the world. It was time for her to get married. So she met this really cute guy in Mexico. Now, she came to my house for a visit, and I said, what can I do for you? May I give you a rehearsal dinner? What? She said, Give me a shower, a ladies' lunch. And I said, fine. How many people? She said, 120, 125, 150. I said, no problem. I had learned to cook in Mexico where they have big parties. So that was just no problem to cook for a lot of people. So that's fine. So now I get the party. And of course, I knew about six people at the party because what you do for those showers is you invite the parents' wealthy friends because you want you want the gifts. Oh. So here are all these 
wealthy ladies from Mexico and wealthy ladies in Beverly Hills. And so several of these ladies from Beverly Hills went to Dale and went to her mother, Thelma, and said, her food is wonderful. So they finally came to me, one of the ladies, and she said, would you give us cooking lessons? I said, oh, no, I don't know how to do that. And she made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I was in the process of hustling for some Carmelite nuns in Cuernavaca who needed to be encloistered. I was raising money for them. So I was asking for donations from my friends. Mm -hmm. So I said, you mean you will make a donation directly to my Carmelites? She said, yes. I said, how much? She said, if you give us 10 lessons with a complete dinner, each lesson, I'll give you $1,000. I said, Yvonne, I'm ended up by making $100,000 for my Carmelites because I taught 10 classes of 10 ladies each for $1,000 each. Wow. And this is somebody who you never cooked. You didn't have to cook. You, you couldn't cook because you were working all the time. And all of a sudden, you're, you raise $100,000 for charity by teaching people how to cook. Well, the thing was that when I learned to cook, I realized it was fun. So then I cooked a lot. Mm -hmm. and I realized what I've been missing all my life. I still have never made a stuffed bell pepper or a meatloaf. I mean, I make complex recipes. <laughs> so it was fun, but I didn't know how to teach. And it was really interesting because for the first class for these 10 ladies, I laboriously wrote out 10 recipes, cold first course hot first course, on and on and on. And I showed them how to make it. And then we ate it, we dined, and they loved it. And I said, your homework is go home, make these recipes, critique them, come back next week and tell me what went wrong or what went right. They came back. Only one of them had even tried one recipe. So I said, you, you don't want to learn to cook. You want to serve my food. Mm -hmm. They said, yes. I said, okay, we'll make a deal. I said, you bring your cooks. I'll teach them to cook. And you can come. I will prepare the food, teach you how to serve it, show you which wines to serve it with it and so forth. And that's my donation. And then you make the donation to my nuns. And that's how I made the money. That's amazing. Were the nuns pleased with your donation? Well, they were thrilled. They were able to become encloistered. They bought a huge piece of property. They had orchards and just all sorts of outbuildings and everything. Years later, my husband and I were flying in Europe and we were going to Spain. He said, is there anywhere special you want to go to Spain? And I said, yes, I'd like to go to the mother house of this convent because I would like to, to meet the mother superior, the Carmelites, the Carmelite headquarters in the world. So we went there and it's a cloistered order. They have 15 Spanish order. So they call it recreo, which is Spanish for recess. And they have 15 minutes in the morning when they speak with each other and 15 minutes of a recreo or recess in the afternoon when they speak with each other. Other than that, they're silent. All these women, my God. Anyway, well, so we went. You go in and there's this huge thing with a turnstile and there's a little silver tray on it. You put your card on it. They turn it around and then eventually they turn it back around and say, tell you what to do. So pretty soon I heard this little Irish voice in the back. She said, are you Susie Nace from Phoenix? And I said, yes. She says, you're a love. You're the one who's been so good to all me girls in Cuernavaca. In, in Cuernavaca. I want to thank you so much, Susie, me darling. And this was the <laughs> nun. So yes, they did appreciate it. Can oh, you imagine going to Spain wonderful. and being known by this lady? Because my name is Cora Sue. But my husband called me Susie. Oh. And they knew me as Susie. So yes, they did appreciate it. Oh, that's, that's so nice. So you had a very active life following your career in Hollywood. I want to go back to ask you another question about Hollywood. During your time there uh, as a child actress, who were some of those people that you remember the most, the ones who had the greatest impact on your life? Oh, Greta Garbo for sure. As I told you, she remained a dear, dear friend of mine, Lana Turner. Lana was my babysitter. She was a good friend of my mother's. I knew Lana from the time I was about five. She was a lovely woman. And my mother went on vacation for a couple of weeks. And I was staying with Lana. And I know that I was little. I was six or seven. 
because I was still calling her Miss Turner. And I said, oh, Miss Turner, when I grow up, I want to have eyebrows like yours. Hers were drawn on way up in her eyebrows, forehead. Remember, there was plenty of eyebrows. So she said, are you working the next couple of weeks? And I said, not that I'm aware of. She said, good. So she went and got some tweezers and she tweezed my eyebrows off and from the arch on so that she could draw them painted way up on my forehead. I thought I looked gorgeous. I was thrilled with them. I said, I'm going to wear my eyebrows like this all my life. Well, my eyebrows never grew back in. Oh, no. I still have two of these slanted things on my, I look as though I'm taking off, got wings on my forehead. I still have no eyebrows. Now, Mr. Mayor was livid. My mother wouldn't speak to Lana for a couple of months. It wasn't Lana's fault. It was mine. I asked her to do it. How did she know my eyebrows wouldn't grow back? But Mr. Mayor was not happy with having a six-year-old child who had no eyebrows. And my mother was furious, but whatever. But Lana and I remained friends forever. But to give you an idea of how different she's perceived, she's such a sex symbol, right? Lana Turner? Yep. Let me tell you about who she really is. I bought a house in Acapulco, and my children were seven, eight, nine. 10 years old. And Melinda, my middle child, had bronchitis. And Lana came down to visit. She would come and visit me for two or three weeks a month at a time in Acapulco. And she spent every afternoon, she would come at about two o'clock in the afternoon and stay until five or six o'clock. And she would give my daughter, Melinda, a pretend manicure and pedicure to keep her occupied because she was bedridden. She had to stay in bed. She did this every day for three weeks. Mm, She didn't do her eyebrows, did she? She knew better. (laughs) (laughs) But this shows you what a wonderful person she was. Yeah. Oh, she was a lovely lady. Boy, that's Lana. Then there's Betty Davis. Betty Davis was a longtime friend of mine. I love Betty. She had big influence on my life. I just adored her. There was Myrna Loy, who was a very, very, very close friend. Claudette Colbert was a very good friend. Really? I loved Claudette. She was wonderful. Um, oh, I mean, it was Jimmy Kay. Oh, my God. Pat O'Brien had probably the greatest influence of all of those stars on my life. He was the father I never had. He was the real father yeah. figure for you then, right, Pat O'Brien? Absolutely. We met on my second film, and he just took my mother under his wing. She knew nothing about the business. So he advised her about contracts, this, that, the other, became very close friends. And until the day he died, I mean, I called him Uncle Pat, but he was really like my father. Just the dearest man, the sweetest, dearest man. I loved him. And his wife, Eloise, was this wonderful lady. And they were just wonderful people. I loved them. Oh, good, good memories for you. Cora Sue, how did your years in Hollywood as a child actress impact the person you are today? It made me a stronger person. If an experience doesn't break you, you survive it, you become stronger. So it was a very difficult, I won't call it a childhood because it wasn't a childhood. It was a very difficult period growing up, but I became a very strong person because of it. So I don't regret it. I'm really so happy that you are able to tell these stories from, frankly, 80 something, 80 plus years ago with, uh, as a great storyteller, you're a wonderful storyteller. And uh, you've got such a great memory that you're bringing people and events alive from the 1930s. And it's just fascinating. How long have you actually been telling your story? you didn't always tell your story, right? You, it was more in recent years. How did that come about? It was only a few years ago. I wouldn't talk about my childhood at all. I just hated it. I thought it was dreadful. And then a friend of mine, as I said, I, I shared this story with very few people. And she told a friend of hers who was writing an article. Anyway, this lady called me and asked if I would tell a story about what had happened to me. And I said, oh, no. And she said, you don't understand. It was the time of the um, Me Too, the outbreak that we were all talking about it then. And she said, no, it's important for this reason. 
She said, from all our research, and we've done a lot, you are the only one of that era who stood up for yourself, who didn't acquiesce. And she said, we need to tell your story. She convinced me, and it was very cathartic for me. It was very good for me. So you haven't been able to shut me up since. <laughs> well, <laughs> I am so glad that you are telling your story because, first of all, it's a, it is such a terrible shame that uh, young people, young young women, I'm sure, uh, and men, young men too, were oh, yes. first of all being asked to work hours that were outrageous, uh, and there were no laws protecting them. And then when there's other other things asked of them that uh, were unconscionable, and some people in fear for their uh, their employment, for their future, just as you said, acquiesced because they felt like they would just be out in the streets at that time. And often with their mothers encouraging them to. Yeah. Well, I want to end with this. Cora Sue, what do you want your legacy to be? What would I like my legacy to be? To remember me as a good person, a kind person who intentionally never hurt anyone. Well, that is a wonderful legacy. And your stories and the passion that you tell your stories with. And the, uh, as I mentioned before, the people and the history that comes alive through your stories and the, and the lessons that are taught through what you had to say and how you stood your ground against some pretty powerful people who could have really made your life miserable is amazing. I'm, I just admire your courage and your spirit and the person that you have become, as you mentioned before, you're, you're a stronger person for it. And, not only that, but the, the adventures that you had after Hollywood, the skiing and the cooking and raising your children and just the work you're doing today, telling your story. I just thank you so much for being a guest on our show, Cora Sue. I enjoyed it so much. Thank you enormously for including me. Thank you and Kelly. Oh, absolutely. And I'm going to ask you, so what's next for you? What are you doing next? Well, now I'm doing all sorts of things red carpets and interviews and documentaries and a book is being written. I mean, just all sorts of incredible things. I never thought at 94, going to be 95 in April, that I would not have five minutes spare time. It's marvelous. That's <laughs> great, isn't it? It's unbelievable. My social calendar is so active, you can't imagine it. Well, you're an inspiration and I'm Really glad that your history, your story could be on that busy schedule of yours, Cora Sue. Well, thank you. I'm just blessed. God has been so good to me. I thank him every day, many times. Amen to that. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and that you have a great day. And the best to you and Kelly. Take care. Okay. Much love. Have a good day. Bye. So for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.